And now, friends, it's time for us to pay a few bills. SongTrust is the world's largest technology solution for global music royalty collection and publishing administration, enabling 205,000-plus songwriters and more than 26,000 publishers to collect their publishing royalties worldwide for over 2 million copyrights. Be sure and visit songtrust.com forward slash pubcast to take advantage of a 20% off discount for a one-time registration just for listening to the AIMP Nashville Pubcast. And now, friends, let's get on with the show. Hey, listeners. On this episode of the AIMP Nashville Pubcast, we have Wayne Milligan, Senior Director, Special Services and Royalty Compliance at TriStar Business Management. This episode, we talk about royalties and more importantly, how to get that money into your pocket. I'm really excited today to be sitting with my friend Wayne Milligan from TriStar Entertainment. Is it entertainment? Sports and Entertainment Group. Sports and Entertainment Group, which is a business uh, management company. Now, for those that may not know what business management is, because everybody knows what a personal manager is. These guys are also my best friend because these are the first people I take any artist I'm working with or young writer that needs to get their money together. These are the money guys. They're the ones that are going to help you take care of things. And today we're getting into talking about royalties. And we have other episodes um, talking specifically more about the publishing side of royalties. As we know, there's there's two levels to uh, how the money seems to, well, there's lots of streams. But what we usually talk about is the copyright. And today we're going to touch in more on the sound recording rights and the money involved and the royalties that come from those, which... I find a lot of people don't really have a lot of knowledge of and leave a lot of money sitting on the table. But before we get kicking off, Wayne, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll jump into the fun thing of show me the money. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate you uh, having me out to talk about something that I'm very passionate about. I mean, royalties is something, you know, everybody obviously, you know, knows when you're working as a, an artist, songwriter, there's royalties involved. You know, it's an, an area of business that's uh, not necessarily covered in great detail. You know, they they talk about it in general terms, the types of royalties. You know, when you talk about copyright, you know, you have uh, copyright royalties for the underlying song, the words and music. That's where the songwriters and the publishers earn their money. And then you have the copyright in the recorded performance and the sound recording. And so that's where the featured artists, the producers, and the non-featured musicians and background vocalists earn their royalties. And so I started out early on. I went to Belmont, worked 10 years after I graduated in music publishing, and thought I'd done pretty much everything I could do on the admin, licensing, and royalty side. Uh, So a friend of mine was leaving to uh, start another career path and said, hey, you know, would you like to come to work for a business manager? And I said, well, you know, I'm familiar with business managers, but, you know, what all will I be doing? He said, well, basically, you'll be doing royalty auditing. You'll be, you know, managing all of the royalty streams that come in for all of the clients. I said, it sounds interesting. I've never done royalty auditing. See, already, for all you guys out there that are like me that are creative, I love guys like Wayne because this stuff already makes my head spin. I'm not even going <laughs> to lie. I'm in publishing. I totally understand the flow of things. But all this stuff that you're talking about and piling through contracts makes my head hurt. But I've learned there's people like yourself that really like this stuff. You know, <laughs> it makes it, me happy. I would have never in a million years if, if my if my high school algebra teacher uh, would have guessed what I would be doing. You know, in, in my career, working with you know royalties and mathematics is probably not something that she would have ever bet on. 
And, and, and it's something that my parents probably didn't. But I just, you know, I found a niche. Again, I tell my staff, find a niche. Try to be the subject matter expert in whatever it is that you do. And royalties, you know, the, when I came up in Nashville in, in, in the music industry, the admin licensing and royalty side of the business was something where we didn't have a lot of jobs. I mean, there was BMI. There was Sony Music Publishing and maybe, a, you know, maybe ASCAP. But for the most part, royalty jobs and admin licensing, those companies had their uh, the majority of their staff in New York and Los Angeles, not in Nashville. So I had to learn by working in small companies. Well, when you work for a small company, you wear a lot of hats. So I was, you know, doing admin licensing royalties. I was, you know, issuing licenses for sync usages, working for a business manager, you know, as one of maybe two people that did the royalties for, you know, a client base of about 50 or 60 clients. And so now here in Nashville at TriStar, we have two offices, one here in Nashville, one in Los Angeles, and I have a staff of about 10. And so we manage about 2,500 individual royalty accounts for, you know, approximately about 100 clients, I'd say. That's so, pretty big. So you you learn a little bit about everything just because, you know, you're you know, you're the you're the person that, you know, has access to the contracts, you're reading through them, you work with the attorneys, the managers to be able to, you know, break down a royalty statement to be able to explain it to a creative whether it's an artist or a songwriter or a producer to help them understand. start basic because uh like me i have a general knowledge of all this stuff but uh you know it, we're, we're going to dive into this let's start off with like we mentioned we have talked about in other episodes about the copyright the 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 song the the itself and you know there's performance mechanical sync grand and lyric rights involved in those but again today we're really going to dive in a little bit more on master rights because wayne's mentioned Already, there's been a big transition when we went to digital, and there's a lot of challenges and changes, and and it's been a little messier, and we're still kind of in a wild west to me. I mean, not on where the money goes, but how do you get your money? Like right. for me, I'm like, where do I go to get my money? So let's start off on a basic. Describe for me the what is a master right, and what that looks like in the flow, and then the, maybe if you can touch in on some of the different income streams that are involved in that. So the master ride is, uh, you know, the the sound record, the sound recording, the performance in that sound recording. That's oftentimes, uh, you know, the artist. It's the producer. Now, traditionally, uh, the sound recording is owned by a record company. An artist signs a recording contract. You know, the record the record label agrees to advance the money. They create a sound recording as part of their deal. Well, we've got a big shift over the last say 10, 15 years where artists are owning their masters and whether it's they own them from the very beginning because they have the leverage or, or over the course of their career, they develop the leverage to be able to get copyrights back. Or when they end up doing a new deal, they'll go to the record company and say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'd love to record for your, your company. However, I want to own my own masters. And so once artists, you know, get control of those masters, they're able to participate in a lot of different income streams in addition to what they're earning from the record company. There's uh, uh, digital performing rights 
from uh, companies like SoundExchange. SoundExchange collects and administers a statutory royalty under copyright. And so there's a stream of royalties from SoundExchange that goes to whoever is the copyright owner, which traditionally is the label, but it could be the actual artist as well if they own their own masters. And then the the artists themselves collect another stream of revenue from SoundExchange. In addition to that, the producer who produces the the record for or the master for the artist will off will oftentimes receive royalties from the artist, you know, through a letter of direction. You know, producers uh, oftentimes earn you know royalty points that are paid from the record company from the artist royalty. Well, they receive that same royalty percentage, and it's a percentage of revenue when it comes to sound exchange from uh, from the artist as well. So you have a featured artist, you have the producer, but you also have the non-featured uh, performers, and that's the musicians and the background vocalists. So under uh, Section 114 of the Copyright Act, uh, the, which is the digital performance right, there uh, is a section that deals with the payment of digital performance royalties. And like I said, it's the copyright owner, it's the featured artist, and there's also uh, a reference to the non-featured performers, the musicians and background vocalists. That stream of revenue is actually administered by the uh, AFM SAG-AFTRA Intellectual Property Rights Distribution Fund. Now, that's a mouthful. I was going to say, <laughs> I am aware of who these people are, and we'll get yeah. into that. I have a story on that. But but what what do the – well, I think the basic way to explain I think a lot of people would understand. Yeah. As you've said, I'll back up on my, my basic, uh, you know, as I call the meat and potatoes knowledge. A lot of what Wayne's covered is in in traditional music publishing and in, in Nashville, it used to be the 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 uh, we do demos. We would write they'd write the songs. We do demos at the studios with the session guys, and those would be demo level. And so we would pitch those. Somebody would like our song, and a, an artist would cut that song, and then they would go in and re-record it, and then that with their label, and that would be the master. So when we say the word master, we're talking about the master recording, the master rights. That's what we're referring to. And it was pretty clean and easy, as you said, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, t- probably 10 years ago, it started happening. And now, as you have mentioned, this is starting to get a little blurrier because and, and I'll pose you this to think about um, because I, as a music publisher and a lot of my listeners are music publishers, but we're doing a lot of artist development. So a lot of times you have an artist and then you will put your own or artist's music out online digitally because it's super easy. Right. But as you just mentioned, there's also a lot that is, is is attached to that that you have to make sure and take care of administratively. But I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Let's go backwards. When you mentioned that whole AF of M, who are these people? What do they do? And and why is it such a mouthful to say? <laughs> so, and I'll I'll just abbreviate by saying the fund. That's that's the the term that we use internally. So the fund is uh, an organization that was uh, designated by the American Federation of Musicians, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, uh, American Federation of Television Radio Artists, which is SAG-AFTRA. They established this fund in order to administer this percentage of sound recording uh, performance, digital performance royalties. That's uh, payable under copyright. And when about when did that change too? That was that's fairly new, right? That, that, that. it happens. Well, the setup of it, I'm not entirely sure when they yeah. officially organized, but it was simultaneously with the digital performance right being created under copyright. 
And and as something I meant to mention, just to touch base on, when the masters were recorded, what we used to say back then is you were on the card. And on the card meant mm-hmm. you were with the union and you were unionized and the union helped you organize and, and help that whole flow of money we're talking about on the on the non featured artists and that and now that is a lot of vocalists are on the AF of M and in that in that realm. And then there's the the musicians union as well. Right. So there's the two different unions that help that. But that is an important thing to know that it used to be on the card. But again, one of the challenges we have, again, as I mentioned, is that now we don't always have full sessions. These guys are building them in their house. Right. They may have some, maybe as you, uh, we've discussed prior, uh, the guy can play the guitar. The, the producer writer can do the guitar. So he does the guitar work. Maybe he has a friend sing, or maybe one of the co-writers is singing some of the background vocals on this. And this is a recorded product, but there is no card anymore. They're not doing session cards like we used to. Correct. Yeah. A lot of times, uh, you know, a lot of the demos are, are, are not being uh, done on the card. And so one of the main things that I, you know, that we practice at TriStar and that I also encourage people to do is keep very detailed documentation about your work history. When you go in and you play, you know, a guitar track or you sing a background vocal on, you know, on a demo, whether it's one that you wrote or one that you uh, just went in and performed as a, you know, as a non-featured performer is keep very detailed documentation. Uh, we have actually, we have a, uh, an estate that we work with and many of the, and it's a, of a musician producer and many of the early recordings were that he, that he worked on as a musician, very iconic recordings, yet they date back to the 1960s. And so back then, oddly enough, it's very similar to the way it is now, they were just creating singles. And so they're creating singles, uh, you know, 45s. And so they didn't have, uh, you know, internal liner notes like they do in, you know, in, in uh, vinyl long, you know, or LP records. And so they didn't keep a lot of the internal session uh, uh, notes of who played what. And so it was just commonly known that this person played on these recordings. Yet we had to go back and and do some very detailed research in order to establish their recorded performance so that we can then register that with the AFM sag Fund and with uh, international neighboring rights societies. So keeping that documentation on everything that you do, in, in we're, we're also a very decentralized uh, system of, of documenting and paying royalties. So yes, the AFM and SAG-AFTRA may have their session cards, but the AFM SAG-AFTRA fund that actually pays those royalties, they don't share a database necessarily. They, they have two different databases that they use in order to research and document who played on what. You would think that because they, they cover and pay uh, the same people in, in different areas that they would have a, uh, you know, a, a shared database, unfortunately they don't. And so they have to, they have a staff that, at the fund who independently researches and documents who all played on you know a particular recording for purposes of paying those people on the recording. A 
Okay, we have gone through a lot of names and streams of money and all that. I, it, let's bubble this down a little bit for some people. Let's start off at a basic, if because we've covered a lot. Where do I go to get my money? Like that, we've talked about where they're coming from. But say I'm an independent. Let's just start on the level of I'm an independent artist. I'm working with a. And let's say we'll make it even easier. I'm an independent artist, produces my own stuff. Just to keep it on an easy, easy tangent, how do I make sure I'm getting paid for everything I'm doing and putting out? Well, like where where are some places I go to check for these flows of income? If I don't have a business manager, I would always recommend go to a business manager and have them do it for you. <laughs> but a lot of them are DIY right. and young, up and coming, or publishing companies like myself that are doing this. How do we make sure we're, we're registering in the right places, going to the right places? Okay. To get our flow. So, yeah, I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about all the monetization side. And also we'll talk a little bit on the how to shore up liability, because that's another aspect of owning your own masters. Good point. So from a from an independent artist standpoint, the main thing is once you've created a master recording, we'll just say you took your Mac and you created something in Logic or Pro, Tool, Pro Tools, you have what you consider a commercial master. So if you collaborated with anyone, if you wrote the song with other writers who very well may have publishing companies that they're signed to, or if you worked with a producer, you have, whether it's contractual or if it's just kind of a, a gentle person's uh, agreement that uh, you're going to pay them some percentage of royalties uh, from the earnings, you need to think about when you distribute what are you going to use and how are you going to then pay out to them and how are you going to receive money? So there's, you know, I'd, I'd say for the most part, TuneCore up until the last three or four years has kind of been the standard uh, system that a lot of people use. Uh, and then uh, CD Baby is another one. DistroKid, I think, is another one that's been around a long time. And again, yeah, these are RPM. distribution, digital distributors now. Yes. These are how you get your music out to the world. I think most people understand that, but just yeah, for clarity. But um, one of the things that a lot of newer companies have uh, added into these systems and new systems that have come along is how to pay out all of these different uh, collaborators. So STEM is a company uh, that several of our clients use uh, that allows uh, these collaborators to set up their own accounts that are then tied to that master. So if the independent artist has a master that's being distributed by STEM, then they can say, yes, and I have two other co-writers and those co-writers can either set up an account for themselves or their publisher can set up an account. And I also have a producer. And so that person can set up a, an account as well. And so based off of the deal terms, they can be paid their streaming royalties, their download royalties as songwriters and publishers. And then also they can be paid their royalty points as a producer. So there's several different options out there. So that's one way of shoring up the liability to make sure everybody's getting paid. Now, since you're the- I'm going to touch one second here. Another thing that I know is important if you're putting music out is to make sure you have, because we're talking about copyright and master. We're touching a lot on master, but if you're ever in curiosity and you're putting stuff out independently, go to HFA and you can license most of your music independently from there. Correct. And, and that's, just, that, that's your mechanical. And pay that, with a credit card. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's very easy to do that. And, and, and there's, that's the copyright part. Now, we're still talking mostly about, but you do need that part, too. There's a lot of, again, streams, and I'm an idiot, so I just want to keep – People right and and focused. we're and we're primarily dealing in a in a streaming model now. I mean, you know, unfortunately we've shifted from, you know, physical to digital to streaming where and in the streaming world I don't want to get too too much in the weeds here, but streaming royalties to songwriters and publishers are actually paid by the services Spotify, Apple Music, you know, the different uh, subscription services that we all subscribe and get our music from the majority of it. Uh, and so that's what STEM pays out is they take the money that they receive from all of these different services and then pay out that, you know, uh, I guess streaming royalty under copyright to the songwriters and, and publishers. So in addition to the underlying song royalties and then the percentages of revenue that a producer may get and that the artist retains from these streaming services, there's us, uh, there's also performance royalties uh, on, on the sound recording, like we talked about earlier with SoundExchange. So as an independent artist, you need to go to SoundExchange and affiliate one as an artist, but also as a copyright owner. And that's the other half of the sound record- recording royalties that the, the label traditionally has always received, but you're acting as a label as well as an artist in this capacity when you're distributing independently. So for your publisher, uh, uh, but, you know, for the publishers uh, that AIMP works with, when you're doing artist development, you need to also make sure that you're collecting that copyright owner share. Now here in Nashville, and I don't know how common this is uh, outside of the country music uh genre but for several years now Sirius XM has been very gracious to offer independent performance slots you know on the highway for a number of artists so you don't even have to be signed to a record company and and they would play your song I mean there's been I mean I think Florida Georgia line is probably one yep. of the the original you know independent artists that actually had you know they had crews play before they even have a had a label deal. And so Sound Exchange covers this, or distributes the statutory royalty that came from Sirius XM. So they were able to collect, you know, royalties as an independent artist and earn substantial amounts of money. I mean, Sirius XM pays really good money on a sound recording. And so you have to think about that. And then, you know, if you're fortunate enough to get some international exposure, then there are other areas in neighboring rights. You know, if you actually have a, a single that that has some substantial activity outside the United States, you can collect in certain territories. Now, there are some limitations when it comes to uh, international performances just because of the way that the United States copyrights are treated, you know, under certain copyright conventions. I won't get on all the details, but certain territories like Spain and Brazil – you know, in, in Australia, in some cases, you know, so there's a few things outside of the United States that you can collect as well. So as much as it's gotten easier in the fact that you, it's digital and you can pretty much chase down your thing, it really your your music and, and your royalties. It really, again, comes down to really maintaining good records. This is what I've learned through my history of doing this. And again, as a publisher that's independent and having developed artists and put music out independently, 
of really making sure you have your admin taken care of and 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 that all these things are registered at the right uh you know societies and and companies and and uh, unions so you can take care of everybody and it's not just as easy as even though it's super easy you and I could record this song right today and put it up on iTunes or a multitude of the other ones and have music out you do need to make sure you're taking care of the back end not just so you get paid but as you mentioned which I didn't touch on yet is the liability you want to cover your butt so to speak so people it, don't get grumpy with you exactly i mean you you want to respect you know the people that you collaborated collaborated with and and get them paid just as just as much as you want to get paid as an artist as a songwriter they also want to get paid cuz you know everybody's trying to you know put food on the table and put kids in college and pay you know rent and mortgages so just because it's a small independent release doesn't mean that there's not some money that can be earned from that. I mean, I, I really, I, I look at royalties and the people that we work with. I mean, yes, we work with very big artists, but we also work, you know, with, you know, songwriters and producers, you know, that they're, they're earning, you know, they're living from, you know, they're getting advances, they're recouping from advances, they're getting cuts, you know, you know, two or three cuts a year. Sometimes they're big singles, sometimes they're not. But they're trying to earn a living just like everybody else. And so one of the, the main things that I always encourage people to do, uh, creatives, you know, in whatever capacity you work in is, one, document how you work and then start looking at, OK, what are the different revenue sources that pay based off of how I work? So if I'm working as a songwriter, then you're going to get paid from primarily your performing rights organization that you're affiliated with. And your publisher, if you have a publisher, if you don't have a publisher, uh, and what we're talking about earlier is making sure that the songs that you have recorded by some of these independent artists and, uh, you know, if, if if they are independent releases, that you're getting paid from those very sources based off of how they're distributing that music. If you're working as a musician and as a background vocalist, making sure that your performances on some of the you know the bigger songs that you've played on you have documentation showing yes i played you know the viola on this particular you know symphonic you know recording or i played you know the the cowbell you know on this you know performance and so all of that gets you know sent to the fund in order for you to be paid as a musician as a producer that every one of your agreements that you have with an artist to produce a track that you have a label letter of direction that's part of your agreement. So that gets sent to the record label in order for them to pay you. You have a sound exchange letter of direction that's attached to it so that you can send that to sound exchange in order for them to pay you your digital performance royalties. And then as an artist, you know, that you're making sure that you have everything collecting from, you know, every label deal that you've ever had that, you know, you have detailed royalty accounts you're getting statements for. I mean, it's just, it's documenting everything. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AIMP Nashville Podcast. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform and follow us at AIMP Nashville to keep up with news, events, panels, and even new episodes. The AIMP Nashville Pubcast is created by executive producers Dale Bobo and Tim Hunsey, producer Brandon Harrington, mixing and editing by Casey Porter. 
Thanks for listening and supporting the AIMP Nashville Podcast. 